Everybody else will be, as Tad prayed, in John today. Please turn with me to John chapter 5. I'm going to finish out this chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And on those Bibles, we'll be in page 519. Give me liberty or give me death. Four score and seven years ago, our Father brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I have a dream. These are all speeches that we know well. Particularly if you're an American citizen, you would have heard these many times, likely studied them in school. They have stood the test of time for their enduring impact upon our society. Today in our study through the Gospel of John, we come to such a speech. This speech is by Jesus, and it has stood not simply the test of a couple hundred years in one nation of the world. It has stood the test of time over thousands of years, and it is for all people on all, in all nations in the whole world. Interestingly, it's a lesser-known speech from Jesus, but it's one of his more important. As we hear the claims Jesus made for himself, may it become even clearer to us who he is and what he came to do. Chilla Anthony is going to come read for us this morning from John 5, 18 through 47. We save the really long passages for people like Chilla. John 5, 18 to 47. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath... But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. <clears throat> I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not love the but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe you receive glory from one another? and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Thank you, Chilla. I don't know if they're applauding because you're done or you just did a great job. She did a great job, didn't she? Thank you, Chilla. This speech is one of the most important Jesus ever made, in particular about himself. If you were here with us last week, you may remember the situation that chapter 5 of John is about. Jesus was in Jerusalem. He went down to a particular place where people who were in need gathered. 
And one man out of the sea of people who were there drew his attention. It was a man who'd been lame, crippled for 38 years. Jesus, in grace and love and power, went to him and healed him. And as that man rose to his feet and began to walk, he carried his mat with him. The religious people of Jesus' day didn't like that very much. Their rejection of Jesus was because they said he disobeyed the law and he wrongly claimed equality with God. The response of Jesus is this speech. It's a lengthy rebuttal. And in this rebuttal, we find some of the sweetest, most brilliant words of the entire Bible for understanding who Jesus is, and in particular, what his relationship with God the Father is like and what he came to do. There's so much here we could spend a long time, but we just want to hit the essential arguments made by Jesus. You can boil those down into three things. In verses 19 through 24, Jesus makes the claim to be united to the Father. In verses 25 through 29, Jesus says, I'm commissioned by the Father to give life and to execute judgment. And then in verses 30 through 47, the longest section, Jesus says, I'm the recipient of expert testimony confirming my identity. All three of these issues, of course, could be a standalone sermon, but we just want to take the highlights from each of them in order to get the sense of the whole speech. Let's look at each one together this morning. First, this first claim that Jesus makes is that he's united to the Father. Verses 19 through 24, Jesus clearly indicates that he and the Father are one. He says that God the Father is uniquely his Father. His words were, my Father. Now, that's not rather odd language to us, but to a Jew in the first century, that's simply something you would not say. That was too personal. You wouldn't talk about God like that. And yet Jesus does over and over and over. Jesus is showing that from eternity past, God has always been. God never had a beginning. And that God has always existed in community among himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is one God, and yet God is three persons. Christians for millennia have described this truth by the word Trinity. Trinity means tri-unity, three in oneness. Now, in this particular passage, the Holy Spirit isn't emphasized, but we'll come to him in a few weeks. But in this text, Jesus says, I am uniquely connected to the Father. Frankly, I don't claim to fully understand that. How can God be one in nature and in essence, and yet three in persons and in his work? I don't know, but that is clearly the claim the Bible makes, and church history has, in fact, confirmed. Jesus says that everything he does, he does because he sees the Father doing it. Jesus says he gives spiritual life to all who he wants to give. 
That's a, a very clear example of Jesus saying, I am God. Because only God gives life, whether that's physical or spiritual. God is the one in charge of life. Life, although it might feel like it at times, is not in our hands. We don't control our physical life or our spiritual life. God does. Jesus says to honor Him is not only allowed, it's mandatory. Just like humanity is obligated to honor the Father, humanity is obligated to honor the Son. And so closely tied are Jesus' words that what Jesus says is what the Father says. In so many different ways in this single paragraph, Jesus is saying, Pharisees, you are holding up the accusation that I have wrongly claimed to be equal with God, but you've misunderstood me. I'm not only equal with God, I am God. God is my Father. And all these things, Jesus' overarching claim is that He's part of the Trinity. He's united to the Father in a unique way. I don't have the proper words to get at how brilliant this is, how amazing it is that Jesus, eternal God, left heaven, came to earth, added a body to his deity, and lived a life to reveal to us what God is like. Isn't that wonderful? We don't have to wonder who God is. God has shown us in Christ who he is. Now, second, Jesus says very clearly, I've been commissioned by the Father to give life and to render judgment. When I was growing up, I would occasionally get in trouble for using a four-letter word. You know, those kinds of words mom and dads aren't excited about their kids saying. I have eaten my fair share of soap. Today, though, many of us are not so worried about four-letter words anymore. I find that in Tempe in general, but even among Christians, we don't really seem to care all that much about four-letter words. The odd thing is that we are far more offended by an eight-letter word. That eight-letter word is the word judgment. Judgment is not commonly thought about today. It is, in fact, ignored and outright rejected. We say things like, don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? Christians are so judgmental. I'm not judging you, but I feel judged. Now, the ultimate example of this theologically, this aversion to judgment, is the heresy called universalism. It's the idea that all religions don't really matter because in the end, God will save everybody. There is no judgment. In 2017, it seems quite clear we're allergic to judgment. But any plain reading of the Bible would show that there is, in fact, judgment. That judgment is inescapable. That judgment is part of the way God has hardwired the universe. You see, in great, in great contrast to our avoidance of this eight-letter word, Jesus says part of the reason he came 
was to execute judgment. And part of the reason he'll come again is to fully and finally render just judgment. This is such a confusing issue. I think we'd do well to read a few of these verses again. So look with me at verse 25 and think in particular about what it says about judgment. Truly, truly, this is the Bible's way of saying, listen up. This is important. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead, meaning the spiritually dead, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus claiming, there are some who are spiritually dead and when they hear me, they hear the truth about me, they hear my words, they will come to life. God will flip on the light of the soul Waken them to spiritual life. They'll believe in the gospel. Many of us in the room that has happened to, remember that moment. Remember the blessings of continuing to grow in that light that God has given you. That exists because Jesus has given it to you. He's the light. He is the life. Amen? For as the Father, verse 26, has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Now Jesus is going to talk about the next time he comes, the second coming. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of life. Of judgment. The Bible's not allergic like we are to judgment. Friends, Jesus has been delegated by God the Father to give life and to execute judgment. God is a just God. God is a God who doesn't take sin lightly. God is a God who responds to the rejection of him. God is a God who has not simply said, the world I will leave to itself. People can do whatever they want to do without recourse. Jesus is the life giver. Jesus also is the judger. Now contrary to what you might think, this is actually really good news. We want a God that's just. We want a God that will deal with injustice. We want a God that calls sin, sin. We want a God that will deal with all evil in His time and in His way. God knows that sin hurts Him and that it hurts us and that we hurt each other when we sin. He knows that the rejection of him is catastrophic for us. And he knows that ultimately we were made to image him. And so a rejection of him will bring judgment. The enactment of eternal judgment is the unique work of God the Son. That's what verses 28 and 29 explain. The reality that when Jesus returns, there'll be two resurrections. Maybe this would be new information for some of us. Jesus came the first time as a baby in order to grow up 
and obey God in all things in order that he could die a sacrificial substitutionary death. He rose again and ascended to the Father, and the Scriptures tell us that he will come again, and that when he comes again, there will be two resurrections on the same day. There will be the resurrection of some to life, life with God forever. There will be the resurrection of others to judgment. This is a real truth. The Scripture is very plain to tell us that it could happen today. It could happen in a week. It could be another 2,000 years. There's no way to know. What determines whether you'll spend all eternity in heaven with God and all that's good or all of eternity in hell apart from everything good? All of that is bound up in what you do with Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying everything hangs on me. You may have noticed that in that passage as we read it together, that our behavior is what is emphasized. That those who have done good will find the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil, the resurrection of judgment. Friends, our behavior is a revealer of our beliefs. And so what gives us eternal life is not our behavior, but our behavior shows whether or not we've actually had genuine belief. And so Jesus is here pressing with this particular audience that he's talking to. You think you believe, but your behavior shows you really don't. It's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call that continues to be needed. So if we push back for just a moment and ask uh, ourselves in terms of application, do we take Jesus at his word? Do we accept that what he's saying is true? that he is who he claims to be, that in Jesus is tied up life and death, heaven and hell, life and judgment. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, have you exercised that belief by turning from sin and trusting in Christ? That's why these words are in the Bible, to encourage us all in that regard. That's why you're here today. That's why Church on Mill exists, to tell people this news, this good news, that there is a way out of death, spiritual death, into life, spiritual life. The Christian need not fear the judgment of God because Jesus already faced it for you. Paul said it this way, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means no matter what you've done in the past or how you might fail in the future, Christian, Jesus has already received the due penalty for your errors. And he's risen again to give you his life. You ought to be hollering right now. That is incredible news. The gospel of grace. That Jesus did for you and me what we should have done. Then he took for us what we should have taken. And he's given himself to us that we might have his life. The greatest treasure you get by believing in Jesus is that you get a relationship with God. 
And even more than that, you get God Himself. This is the great benefit of Christianity. You move from death to living the very life of God inside of you. Again, Jesus judged so you don't have to be. Do you take him at this word? On that hangs everything. Jesus was commissioned by the Father to give life to all who believe him. And he was commissioned by the Father to render judgment on all who would reject him. Now, these are rather monumental claims, aren't they? I recognize it's Sunday morning, you're sleepy. But are you hearing what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, everything depends on me. I have the authority and the power and the right to give life and to withhold it. That is an audacious claim. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis very famously wrote this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we simply must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool or spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call upon him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus hasn't left it for us to pick and choose the parts of him and what he said we like and reject everything else. He hasn't left us the freedom to say, yes, I think he's a rather great teacher and societies would be better if they followed his message of love but I don't believe he's God. That's rather silly. Lewis's point is exactly right. That option hasn't been left to us. Either he's who he said he is, and you bend your knee and follow him, or you're wasting your time here. These are incredible claims Jesus is making the claim to be of one essence with God the Father, the claim to be the life giver and the judgment bringer, the claim that believing his words will give you eternal life. Now, what do we do with all of that? This isn't the way people talk. This is strange. This is weird. Are you hearing what Jesus is actually saying? What do we do with it? Well, the truth is, friend, that only you can decide. It doesn't matter what kind of home you were born into or who your parents were or weren't or what kind of education you've had 
or how many times you've read the Bible, or your relative morality versus somebody else's, none of that matters. What matters is each of us must decide, is Jesus a lunatic on par with a poached egg, or is he God? There is no third choice left to us. Now, Jesus no doubt knows these are audacious claims. And so he does something really interesting in the rest of this passage. He tells us, in a sense, to imagine a courtroom. Jesus is the defendant on trial, and the charge against him is blasphemy, wrongly claiming to be God. And we are the jury. What do you see happen in a courtroom? Well, you bring out evidence. You bring out witnesses. And that's what Jesus does. He takes five witnesses in the rest of this passage and says, they will confirm the truth about who I am. It's really fun if you see that. He says, I'm the recipient of expert testimony confirming my identity. So let me briefly just point out the five to you. First, Jesus himself takes the stand. He doesn't plead the fifth. He gives his testimony. Jesus takes the stand and says, I am, in fact, the Messiah. I am God. I give eternal life. I am united to the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, let me be very clear. I want there to be no question about who I say I am, that you might not misunderstand me. And remember who he's talking to. He's making it crystal clear. I am God. And what you do with me determines everything. The second witness that takes the witness stand is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the greatest of all of the prophets in the Bible. John the Baptist takes the stand. And he says, yep. Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is. He is God. He is the Messiah. He does have life. And he is ready and willing to share it. Now, the third witness isn't a person. It's the works that Jesus did. Jesus, in a sense, holds up a sign. And he says, all of the things you see me doing, the miraculous things, the things that people in and of themselves, don't have the power to do. I'm doing these in order that you might have outward, demonstrative evidence of my claims. He had just healed the man with the little pencil legs who had been crawling around on his arms or carried about on a mat by simply speaking the words of God. And he did many other signs. We'll look at a bunch of them together as we work our way through John. But these signs were done, yes, to compassionately show what happens when the kingdom comes. But even more so, they were done to show that Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be. He is the life giver. He is the judgment renderer. Now, the fourth witness is the, the big daddy. This is the one when 
The doors of the courtroom open. Everyone gasps as he comes in. He's God the Father himself. Jesus is seemingly, in a sense, saying, maybe you don't believe me. Maybe you don't believe John the Baptist. Maybe you don't believe my works. But you claim to follow the Father, and here he is. God the Father will authenticate who I say I am. And then the fifth witness, we find the one that I think is the most interesting. Jesus calls upon the witness of the Bible. Look at verse 39. You search the Scriptures. Now, that that would have at that time referred to Genesis, the first book in the Bible, all the way through to Malachi. It's what today we would call the Old Testament. That would have been the Bible written at that time that the Pharisees would have believed. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Do you feel the ratcheting up of the tension? Jesus is becoming increasingly confrontational. Verse 44, how can you believe me when you receive glory from one another, and you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There, there is one, though, who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, but he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus spoke these words that feel so benign to us, but that's simply because we don't understand them. Jesus has just blown the top off of this conflict. Jesus is speaking to people who more than likely would have had memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in their entirety. Do you know where those are in your Bible? These guys knew them by heart. They had spent the majority of their waking moments reading these passages and trying to scrupulously live their lives by them. And Jesus is saying to that group of people, you don't even believe what you think you believe. They missed Jesus in the text because they got all caught up in the technical precision of their study so much so that they missed the one they were seeking to study in the first place. Their motive in reading the Bible was self-justification. It became about God. It became about them, not about God. Do you ever find, brothers and sisters, that temptation when you read the Bible? I'm going to see someone later today, and they're going to ask me, how's it going with my Bible reading? And so I'm going to make sure I actually open it up and read a little bit today. 
Not because I want to see God and know God and treasure God and love God and meet with God. Because I want to look spiritual before this other person. Those are the seeds of becoming a Pharisee. It turns out that they didn't actually believe the Bible at all. They believed in themselves. Many of these religious leaders had placed their trust not in God, but in their traditions and their own opinions and their own behaviors. They trusted in themselves. They were self-justifying, not relying on God. Now, this brings up an enormously important principle. The principle is that no amount of external evidence can persuade someone to believe in Jesus. You see, no external evidence is actually what keeps someone from trusting in Christ. External evidence doesn't do that. Internal defiance does. These men could have not ever have had more evidence than they had. They had the Scriptures. They had seen Jesus doing miracles. They had God in the flesh right in front of them. And yet they failed to believe. Not because they didn't see supernatural things, but because internally they stiff-armed God. They were much more interested and looking spiritual than in actually being right with God. That ought to scare you a bit. It does me. The rejection of Jesus was not the rejection of a lack of evidence. It was instead the unbelief of self-glory. It was contentment with receiving accolades from people instead of being made right with God. They are, in essence, saying, we don't need God. We're fine on our own. We have our studies of Moses. We're right. We don't need him. We have ourselves. Now, this, of course, happens today. It doesn't sound the same way. We don't say, I've got Moses. I don't need Jesus. But we do say things in the same vein. I'll take Jesus, but not his church. I'll take Christian community, but don't you ever seek to hold me accountable. I'll take the Bible's message about God's love for me, but I'll set aside anything it says about sex or gender. I'll affirm that heaven exists, but not not so much that hell stuff. Friends, we, we can't pick and choose. We're not Lord. God is. Comprehensively, from beginning to end, this Bible tells one unified story, the story of God creating people and those people rebelling and God sending himself in order to live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died, rise again in victory. And now he is gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him together to be embraced and welcomed back into his family. That's what the Bible's about. That is its story. And we can't fiddle with the Bible and keep the God of the Bible. It doesn't work that way. 
Jesus is telling this group, you have so tinkered with things that you've missed the point. And in so doing, you've lost me. It turns out that what and who the Pharisees thought they knew, they didn't actually know at all. They were spiritually deceived, blindly searching, full of wicked motives and ignorant of what the Bible actually says. Now, why were they all those things? It wasn't because they didn't spend time in the book. It wasn't because they weren't committed to outward, observable, spiritual-looking things. It was because in their arrogance they had rejected God. They were justifying themselves. Friends, evidence wasn't the problem for them, and it's not for anybody today. It turns out that if we don't know who God is, then we actually can't know who we are. A lack of knowledge of God always leads to a lack of knowledge, true knowledge of self. Without a proper knowledge of God, there is no proper knowledge of self. That's what Jesus in verse 46 is saying so plainly. And this is the moment of greatest conflict in the whole speech. Look at verse 46. For if you believed Moses, what is he saying? You don't believe Moses. All your anger over you thinking I'm claiming wrongly to be God isn't really about defending God. It's just your religiosity. You don't actually believe your Bible at all. You're self-deceived. You think you know it, but you don't even know yourself. They didn't know God, and therefore they didn't know themselves. One of the pastors of the Reformation, which we're celebrating the 500-year anniversary of this month, wrote about this very issue, and I found his writing to be so helpful. He says it's certain that a man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us. Unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. For because all of us are inclined by nature to hypocrisy, a kind of empty image of righteousness in place of righteousness itself abundantly satisfies us. That is so helpful. Just like the Pharisees were prone to self-deception, you and I are prone to self-deception. We must be careful, Christians, that in our study of the Bible, that we don't lose the God that the Bible is about. 
And we must be careful, ever vigilant, that as we're in the Bible, the Bible is reading us, revealing to us our sin, our self-deception, our lack of glorifying God instead of receiving self-glory. Could it be that you're here today and you think in some way, shape, or form you have believed? But this passage would say, in fact, that you have not. Jesus doesn't want you to wonder. He wants clarity. That clarity is found by believing in Jesus Christ. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know yourself? Do you want to have a proper, a right understanding of who you really are? The only way to get those two things, a right knowledge of God, a right knowledge of self, is to turn to Jesus, the one who lived his life, died our death, and now offers himself freely to all who would believe. Friends, this whole passage comes down to Jesus saying, I am the divine, eternal life giver. To reject me is to reject God. To believe in me, to trust me, is to believe in and trust God. May we all believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray for, in particular, those in the room who are still undecided about Jesus. I pray they wouldn't make the mistake of thinking there is some magic bullet out there, some visible sign that would persuade them, and that through that visible sign they would finally and fully come to believe. God, even the people who saw miraculous healings weren't persuaded by those miraculous healings. Father, what we need is for you to turn the light on in our soul that we might see who Jesus actually is, that we might see who we actually are apart from him, that we might see the love of God is so great that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, I pray that any here today who have not yet trusted you would do what so many of us already have, not because we're better, not because we're more moral, not because we deserve it, but because you turned the light on and we can't help but see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Father, may they respond even now in their own words to you in prayer. Lord, I also pray for brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, in particular members of this church, that you would protect us from vain self-glory, from self-deception, that we might continually come to you to, and help each other to see you more for who you really are, to see ourselves for who we really are, and to help each other grow up in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.